Welcome to episode 148 of The Winning Agenda. My name's Jesse Marshall, and joining me tonight is 2017 world champion, uh, 2017... Oh, I'm not even going to remember that. I, I pretend that I can remember this off the top of my head. He's won a lot of store champs, a lot of regionals, uh, and 2016 nationals. He's the one and only lovable by road, Wilfred E. Hurry. How are you, Wilfie? Hi. I mean, you hear me every week, so I would have expected that uh, my handler would be able to remember or my manager would be able to remember all my titles yeah we, we prefer the term manager uh, and oh 2018 store champion i should say of course um and game of thrones aficionado yes which is uh wolfie's latest title that's been added into the mix uh you're loving a game of thrones at the moment wolfie i do like a game of thrones i've been playing a little bit on uh throne techie or the iron throne.net um just because it's a bit of a different game to Netrunner, fairly different to Netrunner, in fact, and it's just cool to apply some of the same concepts that I already know to a new, a totally new environment. So that was one of the reasons why I started playing Netrunner in the first place, and it's cool to do the same thing again, really. And I've just been playing casually on, you know, the Iron Throne.net, which is the game of thrones version of jinteki it's i think even made in in the same software or made using the same programming language and general like in terms of the interface and whatever it's almost identical so it was fairly easy to get into it from a usability perspective if you're already familiar with jinteki and yeah it's just been cool to do something new and i think i'll be playing a store championships later this month so i'll let everyone know how that goes that's exciting. And I mean, if anyone needed proof that self-teaching AI is finally here, uh, you look no further than Wilfred's uh, desire and execution of adopting a Game of Thrones. So well done, yeah, Wilfie. Yeah, exactly. So I think I still haven't played any games in real life except for the one game that we played together at Worlds. Yep. Which I don't think we even finished. No, yeah. So com- I haven't completed a single game in real life, but if we need proof of the superiority of computers over human beings, uh, I'll keep everyone posted. Fantastic. And I haven't introduced myself, just dear listeners, I I must apologize. I am, uh, insert list of achievements here. Um, I will give a brief summary. Uh, 2014 Australian National Champion, 2016 Australian Nationals Runner-Up, uh, 2014 and 16 Store and Regional Champion, and 2016... 2014 World's Top 16 Competitor at Jesse Marshall. And I also have a recent achievement to add to my list, Wolfie. Um, I won a Game Night Kit equivalent for Shadespire. Warhammer Shadespire? Yeah, Warhammer Underworld Shadespire. Oh, sorry. I forgot to, uh, I forgot to say the full title. Of course. Um, the, we've got to get official names going here, you know, Android, Netrunner, etc. Um, but yeah, Warhammer Underworld Shadespire is a, a very interesting new card-driven miniatures game, which is something that I haven't really seen before. And it's, I guess, the first competitive game that Games Workshop's really ever put out because most of their games involve all sorts of subjective measuring and uh, rules that basically aren't balanced to have a tournament metagame, whereas Shadespire is extremely limited, like you have between three and seven models in your warband and movement is hex based rather than measurement based and uh, the cards are all balanced to try and create a, an interesting metagame between the different warbands so I've, yeah I've really been enjoying that so far yeah so when I asked about this game because I've basically never played a miniatures game before except very briefly in my youth and I don't really have a good idea of how they work I asked whether this was like a traditional miniatures game because you know I've seen people play Warhammer and there's yeah huge terrain you know you have to bring or someone brings like mountains you put them down on the board you place all your pieces and there's yeah lots of tape measures and inches and then you roll a whole bunch of dice so it's I was interested in the idea that this is sort of a divergence from that more traditional theme yeah and whereas in most traditional miniatures games you just move all your units um on your turn and it's uh, you do your full turn and then your opponent does their full turn um shadespire is action based and the actions are um 
you take one, your opponent takes one. So you're limited, no matter how many models you have, to four actions a turn, similar to Netrunner. Um, so you have this really interesting action economy, and um, games only last three turns, and you play best of three. Uh, so yeah, it's really quite interesting and extremely tactical. Yeah, so I suppose in that sense, it seems to me more like a regular-ish miniatures board game as opposed to a whole miniatures-driven war game. Yep, um, and you're, you are scoring points uh, based on game events and positioning and that sort of thing, and kills uh, of opponents' models. Um, but you can conceivably win the game even if your um, board is wiped out um, by scoring objectives at the right time and, and getting victory points. So, yeah, it creates some kind of interesting dynamics and tactics for sure. Yeah, and... Would how would you say that your netrunner experience sort of translates into that kind of game? Uh, I think it's a lot of it's about card evaluation um, because the objectives and the way you actually win the game is card based um, because you have a you have two decks of cards. One is like power cards, which are like instants and sorceries or events, um, and equipment like. Uh, there's no real netrun equivalent, but in a magic, in magic, it would be um, aura, enchantments, or equipment. So you have a deck that's 50-50 instants and sorceries and auras and equipment, and then you have a deck that's purely objectives. And you start the game with a hand of three objectives and five from the other deck. Um, and so constructing those decks is really important um, because the instants and sorceries are really powerful. Um, they mainly help with positioning your models, which is really important because you're limited to four actions and, and positioning is really important, or mitigating the randomness of the dice by giving you rerolls and that sort of thing, um, or improving your um, uh, different attributes on your models. Um, those are sort of the main functions that you have to balance between when you're deck building um, in your instance and sorceries and equipment deck. Um, but in your objective deck, you've got to also deck build to make sure that it synergizes with that and with what your uh, warband is likely to do and what your opponent's warbands are likely to do and how, how they might interfere with your ability to score your objectives. And the objectives are actually quite difficult to score, which makes deck building even more important. Um, and because the decks are quite small, you don't have so much randomness in what you draw. Like your objective deck is only 12 cards and you start with three. So you see, there's a one in four chance that you'll see any given objective on turn one and then you can cycle them at the end of each turn. Um, and your other deck is only 20 cards and you start with five. So again, you're seeing one in four um, on turn one every game. Um, and what that means, I guess, is there's not so much randomness in what you draw in a game uh, which makes your deck building even more important and helps to make the game not feel too random because you've also got the dice element of when the miniatures interact so yeah i think it's got uh the, the netrunner skills have certainly helped me with the deck building yeah that's really cool and as i said before with my foray into game of thrones it is interesting to use the skills that you already have in a different sort of environment Mm. And metagaming. I think that's probably the other thing that would certainly apply if you were to go to the store champs and certainly that applied for me in preparing for a tournament is considering what your opponents are going to do is such an important thing in designing your Netrunner deck and I think that applies to these other games as well. Yeah, that's really cool. Mm. So that those are some other things that we've been up to, uh, but we thought that tonight we might revisit some topics from the past. Um, and, and this is not purely for the purpose of nostalgia, though nostalgia is nice. But in the lead up to our 150th episode, we wanted to kind of, um, I guess, revisit some of the things that we had championed in the game or some things that we discussed and thrown around on the podcast uh, and look at how they had changed or not um, and, and what effect we thought they were still having and whether those issues are still relevant today. Yeah, so the impetus for this was the announcement in... Game of Thrones that there's a new variant that incorporates sideboarding so it's called I think the Rookery in Game of Thrones and it's it involves being able to add and remove cards from your deck in Game of Thrones there's only one deck but you know in Netrunner there's two same principle really so after your opponent reveals their identity but before you actually draw your opening hand and start the game proper and that is something that we had discussed um, previously on the winning agenda. And it's something that the community has discussed a number of times and thrown around. What would a Netrunner sideboard look like? And that model of uh, being able to sideboard after seeing your opponent's identity um, 
in Netrunner would be the equivalent, was something that I, I always thought was a pretty good idea and I thought could work pretty well. Yeah, so that's a way to deal with the fact that unlike in other games with sideboarding, the grandfather being magic, in magic you have a three-game match, so you sideboard after the first game, after you've gained some information about your opponent's deck, which is critical to the whole concept of sideboarding, but before you play games two and three. So you play more games with a sideboard than without a sideboard, but it's not like you don't have any information before making a sideboard decision. So I think the way Game of Thrones has done it is a way to replicate that in a one-game match format where there's not really time or resources to play a full game and then make your changes. It sort of streamlines that process by saying, okay, here's your opponent's identity. You have to work out from there what sort of things they're trying to do and make your decisions off that point, which I think still gives both players a lot of room for leverage in terms of their decision-making. I've I always found that to be the most interesting part of this model. So it's sort of like everyone says... If your opponent's Wayland, then you know you can just side uh, sideboard in, and we'll use sideboard consistently rather than yeah. any other term. You can just sideboard in all your plascrates, but I mean, we should say theme it as you think is appropriate. You know, call it an external hard drive or <laughs> some other thematically appropriate thing in your own head, but we'll use sideboard as a, a generic term. Yeah, exactly. So you can think of it however you like, but when people said, you know, you're playing against Wayland, just put in all your plascretes, put in all your craft spaces, it sort of doesn't really end up being the most effective strategy, given that even when Scorched Earth was at its most popular, and I mean, we're, we're old school, and this is a nostalgia episode, so we'll use those examples, but you could easily say uh, Boom and uh, Citadel Sanctuary nowadays, or yeah. anything as appropriate. And it's sort of like, even when those cards were at their most popular, it wasn't necessarily good to just jam as many hate cards into your deck against them because every viable deck on the Corp and Runner side has multiple game plans. And even the ones where the secondary game plan is by far the less common option so for example if we look at brain rewiring at worlds they still have like even when your opponent does play a hate card like uh citadel sanctuary or biometric spoofing you still need to have a realistic way to win like regardless of how many copies of those hate cards your opponent could have in their deck even if they only have one you still need a plan against it no matter what that's right. And, and although having a sideboard, well, I guess the first thing to say is that if people are making sideboarding decisions based only on ID, you can, and you're playing a deck that you might think has a linear side, uh, game plan that's easily disrupted by hate, like meat damage, you can also, a little mini meta game develops there um, where you can try and game that, you can try and then anticipate that your opponents will make particular sideboarding decisions based on your ID, um, expecting a meat damage plan, and you can design your deck or your sideboard accordingly um and i guess the other thing to say is that a lot of people said well there's so many silver bullets in netrunner so if you allowed people a sideboard even if you know we talked about tiny sideboards like five or seven cards um they you know your influence includes your deck in your sideboard so people can't just go including you know additional influence in their sideboard which you know limits and still keeps restricted your options um, but gives you a little bit of additional flexibility. I actually think that would, rather than narrowing the meta game, it would significantly widen the number of decks that are played in the meta because you could be more prepared for more decks that your opponent could play while playing a wider variety of decks yourself. And you know, I certainly feel that if, uh, as a player, I was able to go to a tournament now when the, really the metagame is pretty open, um, and I could have some cards that I felt made me a little bit stronger um, against the strongest decks on the other side, uh, that would make me a little bit braver uh, with my deck design, I think, and the way I went about approaching what to play for a tournament. 
Yeah, exactly. And there's a lot of nuance in it as well, I think is one of the other important points that people might say, okay, just put the strongest cards in in certain matchups. So find, if it's, for example, a seven-card sideboard, jam in three cards against mid damage, uh, two cards against assets, and two cards against um, net damage, for example. But, mm-hmm. like, that does work. You do construct a conceivable a sideboard that could conceivably improve your game plan against those sort of decks but there's also a lot of room to say okay against these sort of identities I'm more likely to want say one card against assets an extra economy card that's good in a longer game and I'm less likely to want these two cards from my deck that are not as good in this matchup exactly and and I think that the metagames we have sort of tended to develop that there is a uh, stronger strategy on either side, um, whether it's asset spam based at any particular time, remote based, fast advance based, or meat damage based. Um, you know, sometimes there's two, um, but very rarely do you have uh, a metagame that's wider than two or three um, broad strategies, if you like. Um, you know, there'll always be a couple of mixer uppers that are we might describe as tier 1.5 or tier 2. But if, particularly as runner, um, you could design your deck to be a little bit braver in the way that it goes about its game plan and know that you've got the flexibility to include um, two or three cards uh, that are good against each of those main strategies on the corp side, you don't have to, instead of having to dedicate six or nine deck slots to covering all of them, you only have to dedicate those six to eight slots in your sideboard um, and then you can actually fill your main deck with a um, a, a more card intensive strategy um, I don't know if that is clear yeah D- no did that make sense that made sense to some extent what do you mean by card intensive strategy I mean like strategies that require you to have more unique cards in your deck that work together right as in so rather than just having a bunch of cards that are generically good and trying to out attrition the like the generic Anarch or Valencia decks are now probably the best example nowadays, you're trying to combine multiple cards that aren't as good individually, but together are much more powerful, like a power tap security nexus strategy. Exactly right. And and I think that metagames without sideboards tend to develop in one of two ways. They tend to go... uh, People tend to gravitate towards linear decks that are non-interactive, um, because then you avoid that whole issue of metagaming against your opponents because you don't care what they're playing. Um, or you gravitate towards decks that are just really hyper-efficient at what they do um, and hopefully can respond to the two to three main strategies at any one time. So uh, whatever decks deal most have, you know, general card on the runner side I'm talking here, general card and uh, e- uh, credit econ uh, that's quite good and, for instance, deal most efficiently with asset spam and most efficiently with fast advance, uh, if those are the two you know, premier corp decks at the time. Or, same could be said for you know, net damage and um, more glacier remote-based decks, if they're the best decks at the time. And that's the way the metagame tends to develop. You don't tend to get, then get these decks that are um, trying to construct a particular way to attack a particular server or you know, attack central servers or be more creative about the way that they find the points um, if they can't, if they don't have the deck space to then fit in the answers to the main strategies, or they're just, you know, that one turn too slow for where the main corp strategies are going, uh, because they have to include more hate cards, which means that the average quality of their cards is slightly diminished. Yeah, so I think in a lot of respects it does open up the meta game, and it does so in an interesting way, at least at first glance, like. I don't think we're saying that every metagame would necessarily be improved by this, but it does give players more options, which we usually think is a pretty good thing. Yeah, and uh, of course, you know, when I played PU at Worlds, and if people had had access to a sideboard, there may have been more people playing uh, feedback filters in their sideboard, for example. Um, But if the sideboard is consistent with the influence rules, i.e. if you take your full influence quota in your deck, then you don't have any influence to spend in your sideboard, um, then it's really only Shaper decks who could have had uh, a sideboard with uh, feedback filters without compromising their other 
deck. Yes, you could have had some crims playing Caldera, but there weren't many crims anyway. Um, and then there are some you know, less good Anarcha neutral options in that slot. Uh, and yes, that would have impacted on how good the deck was. And yes, I may not have brought PU and I might have gone for something a little less um, linear in a sense and left field. Um, but it also would have opened up my options on the corp side uh, because I could have, for instance, uh, played NBN and known that I could deal more effectively with the main runner strategies. I could have played uh, a Wayland deck and known that I wouldn't have to, well, I mean, if Wayland had a good, better win condition theoretically, um, and known that I wouldn't have to play so many cards to deal with each conceivable runner attack. I could have played some cards that were better against Shaper in my sideboard to side them in and against, uh, for the side them in and side out the cards that just aren't good against Shapers. And I think for the runner side, it definitely opens up deck diversity um, because it op- of the, the things I discussed earlier with the, the decks that are more card intensive or the strategies that are more card intensive. And for Corpse, I think the same is true, that there are absolutely some strengths to each faction. Um, and just by seeing the faction of the runner ID, I think you can get some idea of which elements of your strategy might not work so well. And it actually becomes a really interesting and skillful part of your deck design to design a deck that's flexible enough to slightly adapt its strategy based on the, the faction of the runner. Um, so as to gain just a small incremental advantage from being able to substitute a few cards. Yeah. So, I mean, it's possible that someone's already created rules for this, but if not, then I suggest just as a thought exercise, thinking about what sort of cards would go in your favorite Corpo Runner sideboard. All right, so sideboards was just one. And the reason, as Wilfie said, we thought we'd give this a bit of a go um, and and have a bit of a chat this week is because this Game of Thrones um, rule change came out and it was so similar to the the model that we discussed for Netrunner in the past. Um, Another thing, I guess, well, we prepared a a short list of things that we've discussed in the past on the podcast that either haven't or have come to pass. Um, And one of them is uh, concessions. And this is tied into a couple of others. So I guess we might as well discuss them all together. And that is um, concessions, uh, a formalized judge program and floor rules. Um, So did you want to kind of give a bit of a background to the history for those of you who aren't aware of those kind of three things? Yeah, so these are all sort of tournament structure things and I guess the reason we sort of expected that they would be implemented at some point is because, you know, as we've said before, Magic is a grandfather of these kind of games and it has all of these things and not only does it have all of those things, I mean, that's not enough for Netrunner to also want them, but they've each been implemented in a specific way to make the tournament experience better. And it's not necessarily that each of these things individually makes a huge difference. And I know that Netrunner is at such a resource disadvantage compared to Magic, but I mean, some of these things did get implemented over the since we last talked about them, I think. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah. Uh, well, the, mm-hmm. the the floor rules and the judge program, I mean, the judge program never quite took off, but certainly at, at premier tournaments, there are, you know, a fantasy flight has started employing judges to come. So, you know, at Worlds, fantasy flight has paid judges from the community to come and judge the game, judges who know the game well. And that's certainly not something that happened for the first two Worlds. Um, it was just the game designers who did the judging. And same with uh, floor rules. That ties in because the more informal judge program, you're not pe- not people who are paid by FFG, um, but people who are given particular titles within the tournament rules. Um, so the the marshal and the um, uh, whoever else judge or the head judge or whatever the tournament organizer person is called. Um, but there are defined roles, and there are de- in the tournament rules. It clearly says what sort of decisions these people make, whether or not they can play in the tournament, um, and there are rules for them to make rulings if particular things go wrong. So that's the floor rules aspect is if a particular infraction is committed by a player, what's the appropriate way um, to either restore the game state if the person draws extra cards or makes another mistake, um, you know, underpays on credits and then proceeds to um, do some, your opponent then proceeds to reveal some information. Um, how do you rectify the game state at different levels of play? You know, at store champs, at nationals, at uh, at worlds. 
And if you can't rectify it, what's the appropriate penalty for the player who's made the mistake? You know, all of those things just came up so often because there are so many triggers and so many mistakes that can be made in a game of Netrunner. And you, know, you and I, or I in particular, have, have made all sorts of those mistakes on camera, like in, in tournaments. And it's, it's a high-pressure game, and it's really important that when someone does make a mistake, there's a really clear process for how we deal with that. Yeah, I think this topic is just mostly about documentation. It's not that the floor rules as we have them now are perfect and handle every situation, but it's just if people who go to a tournament know what to expect, even if they don't necessarily think that's the best outcome, it's important just to, for it to be consistent for everyone. And that's sort of one of the main things that makes a tournament. A tournament is that you have a structure and it's applied to everyone equally. And if you are the best within the parameters on the day, then you can win. Yeah. Um, and I guess the, the thing that ties into that is probably the FAQs because not only do are there floor rules for infractions, but we also have uh, FAQs that are published regularly with every data pack uh, where the designer and developer of the game at the time now clearly gives rulings on questions that will come up. And as the game's expanded and the card pool's expanded, the number of interactions that are difficult for players to work out has increased dramatically and the cards have become more complex. Um, so having these really clear rulings from FFG that are published regularly and you know shout out to Jacob Morris for his work with Anchor and with the um, UFAQ updating this um, that has made the tournament experience immeasurably better don't you think yeah definitely and not just him but the whole Anchor team I think yeah absolutely um, so I think you know that package of things before we get on to concessions and IDs because I think that's a slightly different issue but that package of reforms that has been implemented and the the documentation and the rules that FFG have really put resources into developing for this game I think have drastically improved the tournament experience and and as people who enjoy tournaments it's something that we asked for and I think it's really helped us to keep enjoying the game for a lot longer. Yeah, I think so definitely. Um and of course I don't think that the game would have necessarily been in a bad spot without these things but it just as i said makes everything go a lot smoother and it makes the tournament experience more enjoyable for people who want to play a tournament and enjoy the experience of going and competing within those parameters at every level of competition i think it's not only at worlds but even at a store champs or originals or even a game night kit if you know what the expectations are of you you're in a better spot to enjoy playing netrunner within those constraints yeah and i think now's a good moment to probably pause and say you know all gaming communities often put a lot of pressure on on game creators and and tournament organizers within them and organized organized play teams to try and make the game better because we all love it and we put a lot of effort into the game and we invest a lot of ourselves in it um but it's probably worth sitting back on that topic and reflecting and saying, gee, you know, FFG have put resources into this. They have invested, obviously, in um, in the people that they need to write these rules and, and get them good, uh, the and make them good, rather. The design team, you know, Damon and, and Michael and, and Lucas before him, have listened to the community um, and worked with the organized play team at FFG to implement this stuff. And I think it's reflected really well on, on FFG. Yeah, I agree. And I think that... Everyone who's had a hand in any of the reforms that we have talked about should be proud of the work that they've done to make Netrunner better. And the the more controversial one, I guess, which you know, Brian, our former host, definitely took a stand on, um, and we may hear more from this and coming more from him in coming weeks on this topic. Um, but it was concessions and IDs, and it was something that he felt quite passionately about, and that we all discussed, I think, at great length on the podcast. Um, so, for those who don't know, intentional draws in tournaments are where the two players decide that they will take one game win each by agreement at the start of the round, effectively conceding one game to each other, uh, and people do this particularly towards the end of a tournament, where they're certain, based on the existing standings, that if they win one game, they'll advance to the elimination stage of the tournament, uh, with the top cut. And if they lose both games, then they won't. Um, so the incentive there is obviously for both players to accept one win and proceed to the elimination stage together. Um, Wilfie, for a while, IDs were banned, 
uh, and weren't allowed in Netrunner, and now they are allowed. And what do you, what are your thoughts on this change? And you know, reflecting a bit on what brought it about and what effect it's had on the game. Yeah, so it was, I think, for a while. I don't exactly remember the chronology, but for a while they were specifically disallowed because concessions were disallowed, and then after concessions were allowed, they were in a sort of grey area. No, I think I think as soon as concessions were allowed, they were allowed, if I remember rightly. I think I think those changes were made together. Uh, but I think the grey area was that there were it was hard to police, right? Like while they were while they were disallowed. Um, I think the chronology of it was they, they weren't explicitly disallowed. It was just that concessions weren't allowed. Um, and then FFG came out and said, no, what we mean when we say concessions are disallowed is that you can't ID. You know, it's, that's not permitted. Um, so then there was a, a bit of a fatwa on them and people were explicitly not allowed to do them at tournaments. But the anecdotal evidence that we were hearing from people at all, tournaments all the way up to Worlds um, was that they were still going on uh, among players who knew each other. Right, okay, yeah, that must have been what happened. As I said, I think I'm a bit fuzzy on the specific timeline, but I, yeah, the definitely the powder keg was the fact that for a long time concessions were disallowed, which for a wide variety of tournament reasons is not a very good idea, and FFG uh, eventually agreed with that. Yeah, and you know I'm sympathetic to the argument of oh just because a rule is hard to police don't get a, get rid of the rule yeah, it makes sense, but I think there is a utilitarian argument with which FFG ultimately accepted which was that it, if the rule is hard to police we accept that it is um, particularly if two players know each other and the, and we have limited judge resources at these sorts of tournaments and. Uh, there is a, an advantage that's gained by people who can do it. So therefore, the better connected players and the more well-known players uh, who are able to do it are more likely to make elimination rounds because they're able to access this strategy. Um, then that gives them an unfair advantage and that's bad for the rest of the players. Um, and I, I think that's really the argument that won the day and I think it still holds true. Yes, exactly. I agree with that. Um, so the, the question then, I guess, was... <sighs> After IDs were allowed, um, it created this situation where, particularly for mid-sized tournaments, I guess, where you're playing four Swiss rounds or five Swiss rounds, um, if you had a buy coming into that tournament, particularly if it was four rounds, um, you could cons- usually um, get your buy. Then if you won your next two games, you could then ID the last two rounds. So really, you were only playing two games of Netrunner um, in a tournament where you had a buy. And look, on the one hand, that doesn't feel great, Um because are you really showing that you're the best um, and that you deserve to be in the top cut and, and have the chance to prove that you're the champion? Um, or are you not quite playing enough to do that? And then on the, the counterpoint is, well, you've earned a buy for this tournament, which means you've won a tournament at, at a previous level, um, and then you've won against another winner, even if it's one only one round, you've still swept them, um, and you still then have to prove yourself in the top cut, where you obviously can't ID. Um so maybe that's okay in a tournament that's small enough to only have four rounds of Swiss. I don't know. I think it's a, it's a fine balance, and I can understand the arguments on either side of that. Yeah, so it's a couple things there. I think the first is that the tournament structure sort of evolved over time in response to specific problems. So first you had regular tournaments that cut to a top cut, weren't even double elimination in the top cut. You played a best of two match and the winner advanced. Uh, and the tiebreaker, if both players won a game, was agenda points um, in the game that you lost. Yeah, and that that was around for a number of years. And, and that was awful. Yeah, so we can talk about that. Yeah, we should talk about that a bit later. But yeah. I think my point is that the buy system was originally in the game to follow with FFG's other pr- uh, properties. And then... After that, this ID thing came in or came in as a result of the allowing of concessions. I think, yeah, it does have a bit of a strange impact on tournaments that, as you said, are small to medium-sized and do have a large number of buys. So that's usually small regionals, Um, especially small regionals in places that don't have a ton of other regionals already. So you have a large concentration of store champs and a small concentration of players. Um, or a small number of players rather and then you even need to have those players want to ID against each other and that might not be as relevant now when 
with the double elimination because the higher seed gets to pick um, their side for the first round of the top cut, which can be very important, especially if you're only cutting to a top four. And that was something that was, I think, introduced later as well. Yeah, so the ways that FFG's mitigated that, as you say, is by having that rule. The, the top seed picks their side in the double elimination, and that's great. And as you say, that is a good incentive to want to finish higher in the Swiss, because at the time we discussed that the problem with the tournament structure is that there are essentially two tournaments. One is the tournament to make the top cut, and then that was completely separate from the following tournament, which itself was the top cut. So having more things carry over from the Swiss tournament to the top cut helps to mitigate IDs um, or create rever- the, the reverse incentive to actually play your game. Um, The other one is having graduated cuts. Uh, So that's something that they introduced at Worlds to try and stop IDs from happening. And that is that you have a cut at the end of day one um, and then you play more Swiss rounds than you otherwise would. And then you have a further cut on day two. So there are more Swiss rounds overall and more Swiss rounds overall means that um, there is, you have to play more, you have to win more games to be certain that if you ID, you'll make it in um, to the cut. The cut is harsher, effectively, at the end of the day. Um, And the graduated cut aspect of it means that you... It's harder to ID before the first cut at the end of day one because then you make it even harder for yourself to make it to the second cut. So you are really incentivized to play every single game on day one, which might be six rounds of Swiss. Um, And then if you have a further three rounds on day two, um, you probably can't ID all three of those unless you've gone completely undefeated on day one. So for the vast majority of players, the incentive is to play at least six, if not seven or eight rounds of Swiss before you can safely ID. And by that point, you've played a lot of Netrunner and you've proved yourself um, to the extent that IDing is not really such a problem. Exactly. So I think actually the way that the tournament structure is now is really good. I had a lot of fun playing tournaments over the Store Champs season and of course in the year beforehand and yeah I think the what FFG has implemented really makes a tournament an interesting experience where you have Swiss you start off in the middle of the field you know whether you have a buy or not you have to play your first couple rounds if you're doing really well you might get to ID your last round and then you get into the top cut where you then still have to win in the double elimination format. And I actually think the double elimination format is quite interesting because in combination with FFG's other changes because the higher seed getting to pick their side, as I said before, can be really, really impactful. And it means that if even if you lose there, you're not out. Like, there's still an underdog story that can happen. And, I mean, it has happened in many tournaments before where someone loses their first round of the top cut and then goes on to win the tournament. Like, it's yeah. not at all impossible. No. And it means that both your sides are important as well. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the double elimination format. Um, one of the other things that we wanted to discuss um, was the idea of Wayland being a bad faction. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, so now we'll... So now we actually have some time to talk about some factors inside the game. And, of course, there have been a lot of those that have changed as well. Yeah, and I think the, the design of Wayland's color pie uh, has been a point of contention for a number of years. And some very long time and attentive listeners might remember that a couple of years ago now, I wrote an article called What's Wrong with Wayland, um, where I identified some things that I thought the faction needed in its card pool in order to be competitive, because at that stage it was really difficult to play a Wayland deck at a competitive tournament. Um, you know, you had NEH and all sorts of other options that were just far better at winning games than Netrunner. And a few of the, I guess we thought it might be good to go through the the specific issues that I identified, a few of them, and just see whether we thought they'd been fixed. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first one was uncreative, poorly scaling barriers. <laughs> you, you really came out of the gates uh, blazing, all, all guns blazing with yeah. the wording so that, here. What did we mean by that? Uh, so I think barriers that have just multiple end-to-run subroutines and no other ways to punish runners because those kind of ice, while they can be efficient, they also give the runner the most choice as to how they want to interact with them. 
uh, not necessarily the most choice in how they want to interact with them. Yeah, the fewest disadvantages for running into them without protective cards on the runner side. Yeah, and I think initially in the game, these things were very overcosted. I mean, Hadrian's Wall is very overcosted for what it does. The resource, the resources that the corp has to put into it, um, don't reflect the resources that the runner loses initially, um, and they don't adequately reflect the fact that the runner routinely has multiple options about where to run once the Hadrian's Wall is resed. And if they really need to get through it, they can. Um, so we saw, after Hadrian's Wall and Ice Wall in the core set, a plethora of further Wayland barriers that only added the run. And I don't think that's really changed. I mean, Tythonium has been a really huge development, I think, probably for Wayland, but really the only se- only time I've seen it played effectively has been out of faction, which is probably the story of most Wayland cards. Uh, I don't think that's quite true. I've seen it somewhat in especially newer Titan builds as a replacement for Archer. Just because you can, if your opponent, for example, plays Pierce in our time, or if you draw a lot of economy, you can get basically an Archer-ish Ice without having to forfeit an agenda. True. Yeah, so definitely a good a step in the right direction, Typhonium, undoubtedly. Yeah, and the um, fact that it has uh, not only multiple subroutines that negatively affect the runner, but also that does those that in two different ways is uh, a very important thing to do for it to do and on the flip side of that i think bulwark was for me an example of everything that was already wrong with wayland all over again <laughs> yeah just overcosted multiple subroutines that didn't even synergize with one another and bad pub yeah <laughs> to cap it all off <laughs> yeah so i think partly solved we can probably say that a couple of steps in the right direction but still an issue um weak or narrow sentries without with archer accepted um you know that wayland didn't really have many other sentry choices and for a, a faction that struggled to punish runners through its barriers um not having access to really any pu- really punishing sentries other than archer which required forfeiting agendas made designing ice suites pretty hard yeah, I think to some extent Colossus, in addition to the other advanceable ice that are actually good, has solved this to some extent, as well as cards like Mausolus, which, while they aren't sentries, they do sentry-like things. So, yeah, I, I think we can say that this one's been addressed to some extent, but whether it's been addressed in the same volume that you would have wanted to i'm not sure like you know you would expect that in the three years since this article or two to three years since this article was published that there would have been some good cards in wayland so i'll leave it up to you whether the fact that wayland gets the some good cards is successful or whether you would expect that they would get more given the time and the card pool expansion that's happened since then i mean wayland's got you know a sort of big box in terminal directive as well as all the cards in data packs um since the article was written and yeah i don't um colossus is not quite there in terms of what i would have expected um from a a century um that you could jam in in more decks particularly one that works with Wayland's strategy of trying to or the, or the way the designers seem to want to push Wayland, which is trying to score agendas behind ice early colossus doesn't really necessarily help with that um and I would have expected something that works within that strategy um, to have been printed by now. So I'm a bit disappointed that it hasn't. Um, Extremely Limited Code Gates was the other one, because Wayland barely had any. And you've obviously got Morseless now, which was a good card, um, definitely a very serviceable card, uh, but not all that much else. I think the fact that you have Morseless and Hortum together does go... Yeah, Hortum's a good one. ...a bit of the way towards mitigating that, because, yeah, Hortum is very strong and it's flexible, and it works in a similar way to Morseless, but also can work in a very different way. Yeah, I I don't mind Hortum. Um, uh, And, yeah, I think that's probably... You're right. I think Morseless and Hortum together is probably a tick for that. Yeah. Um, On the economy side, the weakest economy operation at the time beanstalk royalties out of all the factions you know you had uh sweeps week um the clearances and celebrity gift and um wayland had beanstalk um 
the fact that there are now you've now got IPO, you've now got lots of other economy options, sort of mitigates that to some extent. Um, the weakness of Beanstalk, but yeah, Wayland still doesn't really have good assets or good operation economy over other factions. Yeah, I think the over other factions is the critical part. I mean, you have IPO, but given that it's neutral, it's not really benefiting Wayland any more than another faction. Um, and then difficulty scoring through remotes is, I guess, the other key thing. Um, you had no defensive upgrade that helped you score, like the other factions, you know, had Ash and, and uh, whatever else. Red Herrings even saw uh, play for a period of time, and then you had Caprice, the, the best of them all. Um, but Wayland really had nothing to help push agendas through remotes, um, and also no real punishing ambush or hostile asset to help with any shell games. So the, the idea of trying to score your points behind these big ice that you were resing in the mid to late game meant that scoring your last two points was the, uh, you know, getting from five or six to seven was always the huge challenge in Wayland. Has that been fixed, do you think? Um, I'm not sure. To, to some extent it has because of the ice, but not appreciably, I think. Wayland still doesn't have a good in-faction defensive upgrade. It has forced connection, but that doesn't help you score agendas very well it just it's more like Prysec in that it punishes the runner when they do score your agendas so I would have to say that this is not fulfilled and that is borne out by the fact that the best Wayland deck at the moment is almost solely planning to score its agendas through fast advancing yeah, and the addition of fast advance in Wayland's color pie has been really welcome and I I know that was one of the things that a lot of people were really happy about in the Red Sand cycle was to see Wayland getting a few of these options through the Jemison card suite. And, and I know the Jemison itself didn't really come together uh, because the tempo and the resource trade never quite worked out. Um, but you've certainly got access to, you know, tier two to tier three strategies there if you want to try and go for the Jemison thing, um, which is cool because those strategies just flat out didn't exist in the faction before. Um, but you've also got a few cards in amongst that suite, whether it's Audacity or whatever else, um, even Standoff, uh, which you know has a lot of synergies and, and triggers in faction, uh, which allow Waylon to play that fast advance game a little bit better. Yeah, I think in terms of fast advance, that's a, a success in that it's given Waylon fast advance tools that make sense within the Wayland faction. Yep. Yeah, I think Audacity is a, a really well-designed card, I have to say. Cool. So all in all, look, I think um, we can say there's been a few steps in the right direction, but Whalen is still a little bit short of getting there, and I think a little bit more on the ice side and a little bit more thought on how it could differentiate itself, not only in terms of gaining credits economically, but also how it's able to leverage those. Um, there aren't really a lot of effects, a lot of effects in faction that allow you to trade huge amounts of surplus credit for some kind of resource advantage or, or leverage them into a game win. Um, and I think some more thinking from the designers on exploring that design space, which doesn't really exist in any faction at the moment, would be kind of cool. Yeah, we'll have to see what the game brings for our favorite green faction. <laughs> yes. Uh, Shaper, maybe? Mm, yeah, they can be lime green. Wayland can just be green. Wayland's in our top two green factions. Yes. Well, I mean, I guess none of the mini factions are really green at all, so we can't can't go anywhere. Well, I mean, if you classify Adam as green, top three, fine. Um, the last topic we wanted to discuss today, um, before we finish up very briefly, uh, was a, a one-off event. Wilfie, um, which reflected a, a broader trend in your life and your development in, in the game of Netrunner, and that was your really special uh, and life-changing interview with Screen Bear. Talk us through that. So I'm not even sure if anyone who still listens to The Winning Agenda knows what we're talking about, but at some point in the past, maybe in like mid to late 2014, there was someone called Scream Bear who posted on Reddit and this was when the Netrunner community was still in its infancy and Scream Bear had some fairly unique views on the game and on the world in general and uh, those views didn't really mesh with any other human being I had ever known so I decided I would reach out to him and interview him and that can be found on our 
website. Jesse will post a link below in the show notes if you want to read it. And so, yeah, you can see that it's not exactly the most contemporary source, but I still think it has some relevance to us nowadays, don't you? I do, and I I guess a couple of questions I have for you on this, uh, reflecting on some of Screen Bear's answers. You said that it didn't really mesh, the, the thinking behind Screen Bear's perspective on the game didn't really mesh with any humans that you'd encountered before. Um, would you say that Screen Bear's thinking reflects more of a sort of biroid thought pattern? It's a bit robotic. I'm not sure that I would call it a biroid thought pattern exactly, but we'll let the listeners decide for themselves, I think. Your investigative journalism... Uh, won't go astray. Mm, and I guess on that, uh, more specifically, in one of, one of the questions that you asked Screen Bear um, was about cards and whether there were any that Screen Bear particularly liked or enjoyed playing with. Uh, and Screen Bear's answer was that they reject flavor in the game as a distraction and strive not to be personally attached to any particular card. Um, that sounds strangely like uh, your view on flavor at the time. Yeah, this interview is over. Thank you for listening to The Winning Agenda this week. Uh, We'll be back once I manage to convince Wilfie to appear on the show again. Uh, There possibly may be some NDAs that need to be signed and or assurances given. Uh, But in any case, if you want to get in touch with us, you can head along to www.thewinningagenda.com and you can find all manner of ways of contacting us, including sending an email to thewinningagenda at gmail.com, heading along to our Facebook page, The Winning Agenda, tweeting us at Winning Agenda, tweeting Wilfie at Screen Bear, uh, or if you want to throw a few dollars our way, you can head along to our Patreon site, www.patreon.com slash The Winning Agenda. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with episode 149, hopefully in the near future. I've been Jesse Marshall. Talk to you soon. Bye.